Our sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. These are the words of God. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Eodius and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow labors whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Let's pray. Father, our world is full of cares and anxiety. Our nation is desperate for peace and knows not where to find it. And so I ask that you would show forth by your word where true peace can be found, not as the world gives, but as you give the gracious love and joy and peace of the Holy Spirit. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, this is the uh, penultimate sermon as we approach the end of uh, Philippians. We'll have one more sermon uh, next week, and then I'll be doing a series on marriage and the family after that. So we are uh, coming to the end of this book. Here in uh, chapter 4, verse 2, We have what is, uh, I think, quite likely what this whole letter has been leading up to. Verse 2 of our chapter is kind of the climax, practically, uh, in terms of what Paul's intent was with this letter. There are two women, two women, Eodius and Syntyche, and they are at odds with one another. There is a disagreement between them. We are not told what it was over. And this conflict between them is threatening to undermine the unity of the whole church. So much so that Paul has to mention them by name, something he rarely does, for all to hear. He memorializes these two women and their dispute in Scripture to be read and taught on unto the end of the world. Why does he do this? Well, if you remember the argument of the book so far... It has been a call for the Philippians to imitate the Christ pattern. Imitate the Christ pattern. We, we saw the Christ pattern at the center of the book. Philippians 2, 6 to 11, wherein we saw that Christ being in the form of God takes on the form of a servant and is obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And because of this humiliation, God has highly exalted him above every name. That is the Christ pattern. The Christ pattern is all about putting things in their proper order. Humiliation precedes exaltation. Cross comes before crown. Death first, then resurrection. 
And this pattern is meant to encompass the entire life of the Christian. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. And so this daily living out of the Christ pattern we saw illustrated by Paul in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus, who he's going to send to Philippi. And last week, as we saw in chapter 3, this Christ pattern is exemplified in Paul himself. This looks like Christians counting all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. It means giving up everything, everything that you love and like and desire so that by all means you can attain to the resurrection of the dead. So imagine for a moment that we are the Philippian church. And Epaphroditus just came running in with a letter, a letter from Paul. He hands it to Les to read before the congregation, and Les opens the scroll, and he begins. He, he reads chapters 1 to 3. That's all fresh in our minds. I know you remember the last 10 weeks of, of sermons. They're committed to your heart. And then Les gets to chapter 4, and he thunders the way that Les does. Therefore, I can't, therefore, therefore, I beseech Eodius and I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. How do you think those women would feel? How would you feel if your name was called out by the Apostle Paul or Les Doyle <laughs> for not being of the same mind in the Lord? Well, this is how Paul is uh, seeking the peace and unity of the church. Sometimes we have to name names. And there is much we can learn here if we, as a church, would have the God of peace dwelling amongst us. And the lessons here really apply to all human relationships. So this applies to your marriage. This applies to uh, your family relationships. It applies between uh, children. Uh, but the focus here is peace and unity in the church. So let's proceed to our text. Uh, we could outline this passage under two broad headings. Verses 1 to 3 address the need for peace, and then verses 4 to 9 deal with how to get God's peace. So verses 1 to 3, the need for peace, 4 to 9, how to get God's peace. So starting in verse 1, he says, therefore, so he's linking it with everything that went before, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. It sounds like Paul loves this church. We've seen this all through. Paul loves the church. He extols them with the language of family, calls them my brethren, of intimacy. I mean, who do you call your dearly beloved besides your spouse? This is the language Paul uses. And he also uses the language of reward and treasure. He calls them my joy and crown. Paul considered people to be the most valuable resource on earth. And these saints were his particular joy and crown. When Jesus said to store up treasure in heaven, Paul took that as store up people in heaven. He took that as, I must preach the gospel. I must evangelize. I must make disciples. And when he does this, he is storing up the most valuable resource there is, the human person renewed in the image of Christ. He says, you are my joy and my 
crown. Can we say that to one another? One of the uh, demonic spirits of our age is this push to sacrifice the human person for the sake of the planet, to reduce carbon emissions by reducing people. As one person said, you are the carbon they want to reduce. And so under the guise of a climate crisis, energy crisis, whatever, manufacture your own crisis, in the name of saving the planet, we destroy that which is most precious in the eyes of God, the human person. So what Paul demonstrates here is one of Christianity's chief contributions to the world, namely that people are valuable, they are precious, And although we try very hard to demean and debase ourselves through suicidal living, Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to raise the dead to life, and no sinner is beyond repair if they will turn to him. It is true that apart from the grace of God, we would destroy this planet. We would destroy ourselves and we would destroy our neighbor. But God is gracious. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus, and Jesus came to remake the whole world. And so these Philippians that Paul calls his dearly beloved, his joy and crown, are the first fruits of Christ's renovation of the cosmos. And you and I who have been born again are the continuation of that remodeling project. From 12 disciples in Galilee to 2.2 billion professing Christians today, Jesus is making all things new. Now, as glorious as that is, there are still problems in the world. There are problems even between fellow believers. Can you believe that? Verse 2 says, I beseech Iodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. So who were these women? Who were Uh, Iodius and Syntyche. We don't know very much. Uh, We can start with their name. They they both have Greek names. It's uh, it's possible they were Jews, but uh, probably Greek women. Uh, The name Iodius in Greek means success or prosperous journey. Uh, Syntyche is also a Greek name that means with fate or fortunate. And these two women are not living up to the names that they have in Christ. Rather, they are standing in the way of unity in the body. And so Paul appeals to them to imitate the Christ pattern, to have the mind of Christ and to agree in the Lord, to be more like Timothy and Epaphroditus and himself than the way that uh, the broader culture is acting. We can only speculate about uh, who these women were, what their relationship was, to Paul, or what their conflict was about. But one thing we know for sure is that early in Paul's ministry, they labored with him in the gospel. We find this out in verse 3, which says, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, this is a different person, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So these uh, two women are just a couple from a much larger group that has labored with Paul in the gospel. Uh, We saw back in chapter 1, verse 27, that the whole church is actually called to do this. uh, Paul says, stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together, this exact same uh, Greek uh, word here, for the faith of the gospel. 
So the whole church is called to labor for the gospel. And these two women had a particular, uh, were of particular help to Paul in this work. This is a great example of what we might call a women in ministry. Women in ministry. And this is the kind of ministry that we as a church believe in. Although women are not permitted to teach or prophesy in the public gathering, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 14, women are commanded to teach other women in Titus chapter 2. And we know from other places in the book of Acts that women prophesied in private. For example, we see in Acts 21 verse 9, it says that Philip the evangelist had four virgin daughters who prophesied. We see also that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to women along with the men. Acts 2.17 says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now, uh, we do not live in the last days like the apostles did. Those ended around 70 AD with the destruction of, of Jerusalem. That's a whole other sermon. Uh, there is no longer, so there's no longer this same kind of prophesying today. If someone calls themselves a prophet or apostle, uh, they are not. You can send them my way. Um, there is no longer the same kind of prophesying now that we have the fullness of the scriptures. However, we can learn a lot from these passages about what a woman's ministry should look like. Women are essential to how the gospel permeates a region. Uh, some of you might not know this, but uh, women talk, and they spread things around. This can be for good or ill. When it's bad, Paul calls it gossip or old wives' tales, 1 Timothy 4.17. But when women get together and talk about Christ, talk about the things of God, when they encourage one another and pray together, this is one of the ways the gospel spreads rapidly. As in uh, ancient Greece, in, in Philippi, uh, life would have been lived quite separate. Men working with men, women working with women. And there are many contexts where it would be improper for a man to speak to and try to evangelize a woman. This is how it is even in uh, some places today. Uh, a friend of mine actually just got back from the mission field. She was a, a missionary in Africa, and she was working in this Muslim context where there's still polygamy and things like this. And the women live pretty much a separate life from their husbands. So the women will be you know, preparing all the, all the food together, raising all the children together. It's a very communal way of living that would make most of us highly uncomfortable. Okay? They also don't have running water. So there, there's those kinds of things. But you can imagine how taboo it would be for a man to just show up in a village like this and just start talking to women and explaining the gospel to them. That would not be uh, the most effective way of bringing the gospel to them, which is one of the reasons why uh, uh, this friend of mine was actually going there. You actually need a women on the mission field who can enter that community, be a part of it, and spread the gospel amongst them. This is a gospel opportunity that no man could ever have, and is very, very likely this is the kind of ministry that Eodius and Syntyche had in Philippi, which had a lot of these same uh, social norms. So women are an essential part of the church's ministry, but their role looks very different than the elders and deacons in the church, which is an office limited to men. 
Uh, Titus 2 is perhaps the best portrait we are given of what a woman's ministry should look like. And this has been guiding us as a church as we uh, seek to do this. Uh, He says this, but as for you, he's talking to Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. And then here comes his instructions for the older women. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The older women in the church are charged with preventing blasphemy from the younger women, blasphemy from those outside the church as they see the chaste conduct of the women in the church. This is something that the women in the church should be doing. Men and women are very different, and God calls both sexes to labor for the gospel in different ways. And when this is done with the mind of Christ, it builds up the church in love. But when there is envy and jealousy and gossip or whatever conflict arose between Eodius and Syntyche, the rest of the church suffers. People take sides. And the church gets distracted from contending for the gospel, reaching the lost out there because we are not at peace in here. So women, I charge you, I charge you to embrace what Titus 2 sets forth as the emphasis and content of your ministry. Read this passage, study these things. You who are older, encourage the younger women in them. Teach your daughters to aspire to what is honorable in the sight of God, that his word not be blasphemed. We see also here in verse 3 that Paul calls on an old friend to mediate peace between these women to help them agree in the Lord. Sometimes you need a peacemaker to intervene. We don't know who this true yoke fellow or true companion in some translations, uh, we don't know who this is. Uh, Some have speculated that it was Paul's wife, uh, but I don't think that is is possible or likely. Uh, it, It probably refers to someone like Luke or even Epaphroditus. But whoever this true yoke fellow was, it was someone in Philippi who Paul trusted to reconcile these two women for the sake of the whole church. And then Paul concludes in verse 3 by assuring them all that that their names are written in the book of life. This should comfort them. In other words, whatever the problem is, this is a family dispute. We are all going to be together forever in heaven, so let's practice getting along now. This is a, a perennial lesson for every church to take heart, to take to heart. Uh, So that's verses 1 to 3, the need for peace. And now in verses 4 to 9, we are told how to get it. Verse 4 begins this way, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. If you want peace, start with joy. This is the 10th and 11th time that Paul has mentioned rejoicing in this letter. Joy is shot through this whole book. And if the Philippians are to be a people of peace and unity, they must learn to count even conflicts in the church as a trial to rejoice in. 
As we will see in the next verses, one of the ways we deal with conflict is by thanking God, rejoicing in him, and then praying about it. These are the ingredients that make for peace. In verse 5, he says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. If you want peace in the church, in your marriage, wherever, there has to be this spirit of moderation in you. I think some translations go with a reasonable. Uh, This word moderation carries the sense of gentleness or civility. It's actually one of the qualifications if you want to be an elder or deacon. You must have this quality of moderation. Uh, It says in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 3 that the man must be patient or gentle and not a brawler. So to have moderation is to be the opposite of a fighter, a quarrelsome person. Don't be the kind of person who stirs things up, provokes and pushes people's buttons. And Paul says, this quality in you should be known to all men. In other words, you should have a reputation for being moderate, reasonable, gentle. Do you have that reputation? He then tags onto this, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. So be gentle, be patient, be reasonable, be moderate. The Lord is at hand. God is so near, so conduct yourselves with an eye to his coming. Don't be, uh, you know, the kids who are fighting when dad comes home from work. Resolve your disputes now, humble yourself, and Christ will exalt you. This is what Paul is saying. This is what Eodius and Syntyche must do if there is going to be peace in Philippi. Moving into verse 6, Paul then gives us some very practical instructions for how to get peace. How do you get peace? He says, be anxious or be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So this is the key. This is how the world finds peace. This is how you find peace. Uh, The first thing I want to point out is that uh, you got to remember that not uh, anxiety or caring is not sinful in and of itself. There are many cares and concerns that should make you anxious. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.28, I feel daily anxiety for all the churches. This is something that the the Apostle Paul felt. When you care, when you love, when you love someone, you love people deeply, you're going to be anxious over them. My dad would say, having children feels like uh, living with your heart outside of your body. Uh, I think that was because he had some daughters. I have not yet felt that quite for my my sons yet. Maybe I will if I have girls. Uh, so, So it's okay to feel anxiety. The question is, what do you do with it? It's not wrong to care deeply, but it is wrong to keep that care to yourself. Uh, The second thing to realize is that um, anxiety or concern then is something that must be given to God. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. So how do you do this? Seems quite simple, right? You're anxious? Give your anxieties to God. Um, Does anyone have a hard time doing that? Right? It's one thing to just know you're supposed to, but how actually do you do this? Well, Paul's going to give us some help here. He says, in everything, 
By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So think about this. This means that if you have not prayed about it and thanked God for it, you have yet to truly cast your cares upon him. Until you thank God for the thing, for the trial, you're actually still holding on to it. You have yet to cast it upon him. One of the, uh, I think this is just one of the most important spiritual disciplines you can ever learn is to learn to verbally say out loud, thank you God for the trial, the thing, (laughs) whatever it is. This is uh, in everything by prayer and supplication. This means maybe you sinned and now you're just experiencing the consequences of your sin. This isn't like you got sick and are just suffering. You know, it could be totally your fault, and you can still thank God for the hard consequences of your stupid decisions. This is how you give anxiety to the Lord. That doesn't mean you always understand why God is doing what he is doing. Take the example of Job. <laughs> he, he is not told why. It doesn't mean that the trial is good in and of itself. You are not called uh, to say that things that are evil are actually good. What we are doing is saying that God is good, that God is the giver of all things, that he is weaving this story that we cannot understand. And for those, as as Luke prayed, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, it's going to work for your good. There is a great conspiracy for your good if you belong to God. So you don't always understand. In fact, you almost never understand. But you walk by faith. You're a Christian. You're a believer. You believe the goodness and love of God even when you cannot understand. Thank you, God, for this trial. I don't know how this is working for my good. I don't like it. Take it away but I trust you and I trust that you're working it for my good. That's how you become a person at peace with God. That's how you give your anxieties to the Lord. As Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is God, we are not. And God is more good and more loving and more wise than you can fathom. Your job is simply to trust him. Give thanks to him. So if you want peace, you have to pray and not just pray, not just grumble, but pray with thanksgiving to God for his mysterious goodness in all things. To do that is really to possess a true superpower in this age of anxiety. If we do this, then we can grab hold of the promise given in verse 7, where he says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Notice this peace from God surpasses human understanding. It doesn't make sense. Just like the trial doesn't make sense, neither does the peace. Peace is a supernatural gift from God that he gives to those who look to him with faith and thanksgiving. And then finally, in verses 8 to 9, Paul tells us what to meditate upon if we would desire this peace to continue with us. 
He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are, and he's going to list eight qualities. Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy. That should be the rubric for your meditation. That can help you set, uh, you know, entertainment standards in your home. If you meditate upon these things, then the peace will come. But if this is not your meditation, then you should not be surprised that your joy is dull, you are full of grumbling and ingratitude, and you have all of this anxiety. And so fill your mind, fill your ears, set nothing wicked before your eyes, and meditate upon these things that please God. Paul says, if you do these things, what you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. I'll close with this. When, when there is conflict in the church, or conflict in your family, in your marriage, between brothers, whatever. It is uh, most often a reflection of the conflict and unrest in our own souls. And so for whatever was wrong between Iodius and Syntyche, the solution for them is the same solution for us. And that is follow the Christ pattern. Humble yourself before the Lord. Rejoice Always, even as Christ was rejoicing from the cross, singing psalms. And then pray. Pray with thanksgiving to God. And the God of peace promises to be with us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we confess that we are a naturally grumbling and complaining people. We ask that you would detach our heart from clinging to idols. And we ask that you would give us the spirit of joy, the spirit of peace, the spirit of thanksgiving, so that we can have a new relationship to our suffering, to our trials, to the problem people in our world. God, make us to give thanks, to cast our cares upon you, because we know that you care for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen.